What a great morning it is to be together and to open up to God's Word and to celebrate everything that He has given us so far. Over the past several weeks, we have been looking specifically at the armor of God in the context of spiritual warfare that is taking place in the lives of every Christian, everyone who is a part of this salvation army who has been called in Christ. What does it mean for them then to walk with God? What does it mean for them to walk with God in the midst of trial and circumstance? What does it mean to, for them to walk with God in the midst of doubt? What does it mean for them to walk with God circumspectly to a world that simply does not understand what it means to be a Christian? When we talk about ourselves as a covenant people, when we just realize that we are brought into a relationship with one another, when we identify the importance and the significance of the church, what does it mean to be a Christian in a world where these things don't seem to be pressed as important at all? No better time has come, I think, than to point out that Christians are very countercultural, and I don't bring that up as a way of identifying the fact that we're supposed to be different and we should war or rally against the culture around us, rather to recognize the parts of the culture that are simply controlled by he who is the prince of the world, Satan. That we would live as people who are children of the sovereign God who holds the world in his hand and makes for it his own footstool. That we would realize that as a Christian group of people brought together that our relationship with one another is based on our common citizenship in heaven grafted into the nation of Israel. That we might stand before God and even before a world that contradicts Him as people that represent Him. The problem inside of every Christian is that self-worship seems to be a world that we only a word that we only ascribe to those people who are living in the world and we neglect the fact that self-worship is as prominent in our own lives as it is in the world in many cases specifically and namely if we neglect to live with the whole armor of God on us man's condition of self-worship and even self-reliance can be leveraged by the enemy to thwart the maturing work of the Spirit, and the new life of Him in post-conversion. And let me clarify when I say that, I am not contending in any way that Satan has any power over God or that the Spirit can be thwarted by Satan's own work. We already, as we have sung this morning, have victory in Christ. But if in your own life you yield to the self-worship, the self-reliance, what the world is propagating around you as the commonplace idea, you will fail to be maturing in Christ. You will neglect what it means to mature. You will neglect what it means to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So far, we've made our way through this passage looking at those different elements of spiritual armor, the belt of truth that girds everything up, the breastplate of righteousness, which protects our heart and our character and even protects our own inner self and the shoes for our feet that are willing to make peace as 
quickly as possible, readiness to give the gospel of peace to those who are offended by the truth that we stand upon. The shield of faith that we can take up, even as a community of believers protecting one another and lending this faith that we might protect one another and stand together as a community. And this morning, we will take our look or our attention and place it on the helmet of salvation. I pray that you have already opened your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll pray and then we'll read from God's Word and begin to look at this passage. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this morning and the time that we have to open up your Word and to worship you with songs and hymns and praise and to hear from you, Lord, in your inspired Word. God, we recognize that what has been recorded in the Bible is your breathed out word, that this is how you speak to your people, not through a man, but through this book. God, I thank you for that. I pray that as we turn to your inspired word, that you would give us wisdom to understand how to apply the truths that you have given us to our own lives, that you would give us insight, that we would be able to comprehend what is written that you would give us a heart of worship as we move through the text. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 begins, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Our attention this morning is on verse 17, and particularly the first five words in verse 17. We look at the helmet of salvation, and more specifically this morning, we'll look at the command given to us to take up the helmet of salvation. And I want to point out what I think we've already noted last week, and that is that there is a shift in the description of the armor of God as we move through this passage. A shift meaning we move from discussing it as something that we should always have on, always have ready, always be prepared, to this is a spiritual combat. When these flaming darts come against us, this is what we take up and what we put on. 
the shift begins, you know, the belt girds up truth. You should always be standing on truth. It should gird up everything about you. The breastplate should protect your heart and your character. You should always be living righteously. And then the shoes for gospel peace. Well, if they're to be ready, they should always be on. Then the shield of faith comes in. Well, no one who carries a shield keeps it on them all the time. That doesn't mean that we should abandon faith except in the moments of trial. But it means that the shield of faith is a defense to the way that we're supposed to live our lives. We ask, what does it mean to be combative in spiritual warfare? Well, it means to take up the shield of faith. It means when you see the flaming darts coming that you pick it up, that you extinguish the flaming darts before you. And the shield, it can be taken up, it can be shared, and it's remarkably relational. That's what we looked at last week. And if you'd like to hear more about that, our sermons are all published online. You can go online and listen to last week's sermon, and you can make sure that what I'm saying is homogeneous in thought, that these things are connected. Because as we move through the passage, we've already realized that this passage is connected to everything Paul's already written in the book of Ephesians. This shift can be summarized by observing that the first three pieces of armor that God has given the Christian are supposed to always be on. They are readiness, our preparedness to live the Christian life and to observe it as a battle. The final three, though, are available to the Christian to take up, to prepare, to enter into that battle. Let's note that the battle we enter into is more commonplace than we realize I think it's a terrible thing whenever we neglect these last three elements of uh, what the spiritual armor is, whenever we neglect to realize the spiritual warfare that we are involved in, that we're wrapped up in. Verse 11 of our text instructs the saints in Ephesus to take up the whole armor of God. So I want to be clear when I say that these things are supposed to be taken up for spiritual warfare, I'm not saying that they can be left aside or neglected. The command in verse 11 is take the whole thing up because the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in is commonplace. The shield, the helmet, the sword are elements of our armor that are designed to be engaging with the enemy in battle. Now we have to be clear who that enemy is. I think we've done a good job of that. It's the devil. This shift is exceptionally important as we take a look in understanding what this command is in verse 17 when Paul writes, take the helmet of salvation. See, the word used in the Greek language here in verse 17 is actually different than what our English translation of the Bible uses in verse 13 and 16 for the same word, take. Verse 13 tells us to take up the whole armor of God. Verse 16 says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Well, that is the word analambano in the Greek. And I'm trying to draw out that when we get to verse 17, we don't use the word analambano again. This shift is more apparent in the original language than we can see in an English translation. And so I want to show you why Paul is making this shift. I want to unpack what is the difference between analambano and this new word that appears. See, the word used in the Greek for analambano means to take up with the means of using something. It means to take something up with the purpose of using it. 
Paul uses this word in a literal and practical sense when writing to his protege Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul tells Timothy, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Take up Mark with the means of using him and bring him to me. He is planning to take him up because he's profitable. He needs to be used in the ministry by Paul. This is the same way that he uses it in verse 13 and verse 16 when he says, take up the armor of God and take up the shield of faith. We have so far in our study stressed, or at least I've tried to stress, a similar attitude towards truth, righteousness, and peace. That these are elements that God has given to us that we do not take them up by our own strength, but through God's provision to be careful of the heresy that would lead us to believe that we can do anything to obtain or sustain our own salvation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Many times we look at the spiritual armor of God and, and what is supposed to be drawn out here, that Christians are supposed to take them up as a means of combating spiritual warfare. And the idea that gets planted in our head is that spiritual warfare is all about our engagement. Spiritual warfare is all about everything that I do. You can do nothing without Christ. This is the imperative of taking up these things. They have been provided to you by God. They are useful for you, but you do not use them. They protect you. Stephen was literally killed for quoting the prophets who condemned the people of Israel for being stiff-necked towards their understanding of what it means to take up what God has given them. If you looked at Acts chapter 7 at the portion of Stephen's speech right before he was killed, Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And for this, Moses, who led them out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship for worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me a slain beast and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephaim and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This sin of this heresy, this neglect of realizing what God has given us to place the importance on the Christian to take up the spiritual armor of God has been present not just in what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, but it is the consistent theme all throughout the Bible for God's people. Israel's neglect in worshiping God, even though they were called apart to worship Him, was that they still tried to worship God by their own means, building a calf, Stephen brought this before the people, the spiritual elite, and he said, listen, this is what we've been doing all along. I'm giving you the gospel. Are you going to do the same thing that our fathers did in the wilderness? And the response, the response to real righteousness, calling them away from this, was to kill Stephen. In churches today, this is the same thing that takes place. 
We point out that no one among us is righteous. That there's sin that deserves to be addressed. In fact, sometimes we don't even address it as loudly as we should address it. Instead, we address it passively, and our own righteousness becomes the cause of offense in the life of another believer. Not because what we're doing is necessarily offensive, but because people realize that what we are saying is true. This is what causes offense. That's why we have the shoes of gospel peace, that we're ready to make amends and all these, to restore, to reconcile as God has already reconciled to us. We've been cautious in exploring the passage as we consider this morning. Taking up would be what God has provided for us to do. That through faith, we are able to rely on its effectiveness, on his effectiveness rather. For the same condemnation Stephen preached is true today. We must not think we can do this on our own. Paul turns in verse 17 to a new word. And this is our attention this morning as we look at taking up the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, Paul uses a brand new word that he has not used yet in this passage. The word dekomai. What in the world does dekomai mean? This is... This is a unique nuance in Greek because it carries a secondary meaning. Yes, it can be translated take. It can also be translated receive. To receive something. While the new word certainly does not mean to take hold of or to take up or carry, it it means to receive something as in to receive hospitality or to receive into one's own family. See that when we, someone comes into the family of God, when they come into the church, we take them in among us. We receive them to our body. When we go to a friend's house or a loved one's house, we receive their hospitality. I think in the world that we live in, we've probably lost the, the, the gift of hospitality in many ways. And I've been blessed to see it in ways that I've never seen it in my own life through this church. But for whatever reason, it seems like, especially with the younger generations, whenever somebody is hospitable towards you, their reaction is always, oh, no, let me do that. Oh, no, let me help with the dishes. Oh, no, let me do all all of these funny little quirks that I think we've adopted in our American culture because we can't let anyone do anything for us. Instead of taking their hospitality, receiving it and accepting it and realizing that it's a gift that they're providing to us. See that the burden or the trouble can be taken upon oneself. We can take somebody's burden. We can carry somebody's own burden with us. We can receive, sustain, bear, and endure that burden. Dekomai. Let me take that burden from you. Let me receive that from you. This is a major difference than the word that we've seen so far in Paul's writing. Before, the picture and everything that he was drawing out was that I would take something up with the purpose of using it. Now he's telling us to receive, to put on, to take up, to accept the helmet of salvation. What could this possibly mean? This reception element is made clear in the rest of the New Testament. Acts 8.14 Now when the apostle which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had 
received. That's the word dekomai. Received the word of God. They sent unto them Peter and John. It doesn't just describe how God's salvation is applied to his people, but it is the very nature of atonement. Instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, with desire I have With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took Decomai. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, Decomai, take this, and divide it among yourselves. His instruction for the church is to take what has been given, to receive what he's already accomplished, to accept and to take it in among you. While he himself takes what our burdens are, our worries, our struggles upon himself. He receives them on our behalf. Do you remember three weeks ago we talked about imputation? Well, this is what it is. He's receiving onto himself our burdens, our cares, our stresses, our struggles, everything upon himself. And by the way, not just the trivial matters of life that are temporary, but the eternal burdens. The eternal burdens of a sin-wrought condition, of a fallen state. He bears them upon himself that we might receive to ourselves what he's giving us. How does this nuanced understanding of the wordplay in this passage affect our understanding of taking the helmet of salvation then, right? That's the question we need to ask. You've all been very gracious to me this morning. I will note I've received no amens as I looked at the original Greek language. But you've been gracious to let me nerd out for a moment on a nuance that is taking place here. As we move forward, I want to ask you one thing. As we look at this text, I want to ask you to do me a favor. You've let me be nerdy. Now I'm going to ask you to be gracious in one more way. I wasn't nerdy just so I could waste your time talking about different Greek words. When we look at the Bible and we say that we believe that it is an inspired text that God has given us, we also realize that His sovereign will established that the Bible would be written in a time when they used a particular Greek language with this nuance where we could have the play on word between the word take. He didn't do that on accident. Paul didn't write that on accident. And by the way, it wasn't Paul writing, but it was God inspiring him to write it. So when I bring it up and I bring it out and I point out to you what's taking place in the original language, I don't do it so that you can drone out and just let me be nerdy. I do it because it has an imperative consequence on the way that we understand what it means to take up the Word of God. The question we need to ask is, what does it mean to take up the Word of God? There's very clearly, we can see in our English translation, there's a verb. This is a command. This is an imperative in the text. This is something you should do this morning. Take up the armor of God. Take the helmet of salvation. How we understand that depends on how we understand what it means to take. I don't want to twist the language. I want to be really clear. Because God chose to write this in a language that was very clear. Decomai, not analambano. Receive. 
How does this nuanced understanding of the wordplay in this passage affect our understanding of taking the helmet of salvation? That's the question we need to ask this morning. While it's true, none of the armor of God is available to anyone who is not already in Christ, it is also too easy to stand in the right spot and smelt your own breastplate of righteousness and borrow your neighbor's shield of faith to get you through trouble. While it's true, as a Christian, um, rather, let me, let me draw this out. It's possible for you to be a Christian, and that is the only means by which you will have the armor of God. It's also possible to deceive yourself into thinking that you are a Christian because you're standing in the right place this morning. Because you have a moral understanding of what is right and wrong. Because you have an understanding of God's righteousness and His truth. And you see that the way that you live your life, as long as it looks abundantly Christian, that that is a genuine thing. It's possible to stand on the right truth, to be a generally good person, and to not have the authentic armor of God. It's possible to sit in the pew at church, to live a righteous life, even to be passionate about the things that the church is passionate about, and to not have the right attitude that comes from knowing God. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage, and I think he makes an astute observation that I wanted to share with you. If you're not familiar, Eugene Peterson's the author of The Message. So The Message says, Be prepared. You're up against more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that, within, so that when it is all over with, but the shouting, you'll be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, and faith are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. It's easy to preach from this message. It's easy to look at God's word and to know how he wants his people to live. It's easy to Understand the truth that the Bible presents before us. Things like the sanctity of life, that God has created all things from the beginning of time, that God upholds the world, that every natural law that exists is by His design because He is the lawmaker. That it's easy to look at what God tells us to do and to live righteous lives and to say, if you're not doing that, you're living a sinful life. And to smelt what I would describe as our own breastplate of righteousness, that it looks like we're doing everything the way that we are supposed to. As a matter of fact, it's easy to preach on holiness and to coach someone into living a better life. It's easy, even as a pastor, to say, this is what God desires for you. But we cannot neglect that real spiritual warfare demands spiritual battle. That is, that our heart is in the right place, that our worship is coming from the right place. Loved ones, consider this. The world is full of false teachers that dole out genuinely good, practical advice for finances, relationships, interpersonal issues like depression, self-worth, and the list goes on. 
The world is full of people that will give you all the self-help that you need to overcome every struggle that you face in your life. Most of these people, particularly the ones with better advice than others, base what they have on the reality of, that's, of what Scripture teaches. That doesn't mean that they all believe it. And do we have a view of God that He's some sort of genie that we can rub a lamp and He can give us what He wants? Do we have a view of God that, that all of these things, putting on spiritual warfare, well, it just demands that God would bless us with peace and tranquility? Even as your pastor, I, I can preach hard against sin. And, and you'd think, loved ones, I, I think I've done this recently. And I, Well, three weeks ago, I called the whole church to repent together. To corporately repent. Well, think about this. As your pastor, I can preach hard against sin. You'd think it'd be easier to preach against sin that had no effect on my life, but can I tell you what I've discovered? In my abundance of pastoral ministry, it's actually easier to preach hard against sin that I've had to overcome in my own life. Because I need you to see it. If we apply what we now know about what it means to take and what it means to receive what God has given us, we also realize that we will never overcome a sin-wrought condition on our own. We'll never be able to look at what it means to come to genuine repentance unless we first turn to Christ. And rather, not us turn to Christ, but Him counsel us and convict us and burden us with that. It starts with Him, doesn't it? When we preach righteousness and holiness, we do not exhort ourselves to figure it out for ourselves. We exhort and encourage ourselves to give up trying to do it on our own because you, like me, like everyone in all creation, are helpless without God's salvation. We can get caught up in the practical running of what it means to run a church. We can forget that bylaws don't exist just so we can have some sort of formality to discuss things, but that they actually exist so that we can apply what the church is commanded to do in the, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth particularly, to conduct ourselves in good order. That's why we have bylaws. Are they perfect? No, they were written by man. God didn't inspire them. That's why we leave room to change them. Have we left any room to change the Bible? No. It's perfect. It still says conduct yourself in good order. We forget that doctrine exists not so that we can be divisive and figure out all of the different elements that we disagree on, but so that we can dive deeper into the truths that God has given us, into the oracles of God. So that we can understand and expound upon simple truths that are uncontextualized and bring in the wealth of knowledge of context. I speak about context quite a bit, and you guys have heard me as I preach point out that context is imperative to understanding what a text says because a text cannot mean what it never meant. Do you realize oftentimes when we talk about context, we say, well, if it's this sentence, that context would be the whole paragraph or the whole idea. Well, if it's that paragraph, well, then it's the whole chapter. Do you realize context goes all the way up to the whole Bible? Scripture interprets itself. 
Doctrine doesn't exist so that we can be divisive. It exists so that we have a place of looking at what the whole Bible teaches and interpreting the Bible. Not to eisegete or to defend our own doctrinal stance, but rather so that we have a place of challenging it, so a place of correcting, a place of building upon, so that we can go deeper beyond just Jesus loves you, because it's way better than that. The gospel message is way better than that. It's bigger than that. We forget that covenants are written not to be forgotten about, but to identify us as a people set apart from the community that we are in. It's not just a matter, again, like the bylaws of giving us something to discuss, but it is a practical application of what the Bible teaches the church is. It's an application of understanding that God's people have always been covenant people. Our actions may look like the right things. We might sit in church and say amen in all the right spots. Amen? But our heart's not in the right place. Uh, this isn't about beating us down that we would see that we're totally incapable of anything on our own. Looking at what it means to take the helmet of salvation is actually about realizing what it means to receive what God has given us. It's actually understanding what salvation is to begin with. You may be deceived into thinking that you're part of the Christian army, but really all you've done is learned a moral code and a way of life. Maybe you've identified closely with the biblical principles a lot of people in this world have already adopted. And that's why it matters that we understand this, loved ones. That our focus and our understanding would be on the reality that God has done the work for us. Salvation is work that God has accomplished. As a second point this morning, I pray that this is the case for most of us, that because this is so applicable, that what Paul is writing is to take up salvation, that we would understand that this is God's work. Understanding what the Bible says about this, James 1.21 echoes this passage when James writes to the dispersion, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, well, that's righteousness and truth, and receive, oh, there's the word that we just learned, deochemi, with all meekness, the implanted word. The truth of God's word has been deposited in his children. Those who have come to the faith have inscribed upon their hearts God's law. Our understanding and our ability to read and apply God's word is hinged upon our own salvation that is within us. Ezekiel 36, 24 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. The doctrinal implication of this is where does regeneration come from in the first place? 
When we talk about righteousness or living a holy life before God, it seems like our focus is always on being a better us. It's not about being a better you. It's about resembling Christ more. It's about forsaking yourself more. I mean, this is the whole principle of faith to begin with. Less of you, more of him. The church shouldn't look like a bunch of better us's. It should look like a better Christ. It should look like the body of Christ and the way that we function. It seems like, though, the problem that we've run into is that we've placed all of our attention, all of our focus, everything that we do on our justification, which is our immediate salvation, our just as if we've never sinned as soon as we place our faith in Christ, and the day of glory that we get to look forward to, the day that we get to look forward to in the future whenever we're in heaven with Him, and we've forgotten that He left us here for a purpose. He's actually trying to grow you. He's trying to grow this faith within you. He's reaching out inside of you. And the reason we've forgotten it is we put all of our human Focus on ourselves. Self-worship, self-idolatry, self-reliance. And so we try to figure out how to write a better covenant on our own instead of seeking God's will. We try to figure out how to conduct ourselves in business meetings in a way that glorifies God instead of seeking His will. Where is the worship in all of these things if God is not the priority? We come to the Lord's Supper, ready to commune with believers without having spent any time throughout the week inside of God's Word, learning what He has taught us. Our old self, if we understand this correctly, was dead in our trespasses and sins. Still, we've concocted some sort of illustration that salvation begins with our faith. How can a dead thing have faith? How can a dead thing turn and face God? It can't. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. By faith, we were saved. But let me ask you, where does that faith come from? This doctrine that we are building up to is called regeneration. That a dead thing would be regenerated. This has to happen before faith. It must precede faith. God performed a miracle, a mountain-moving, mesmerizing operation, as Ezekiel has written, to change the internal structure of ourselves. He says, I've taken out of you a heart of stone. I've put in its place a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. By the way, the word spirit also means wind, breath, inner life. I will put my pneuma inside of you. He's taken everything that's inside of our lungs and replaced it with his own. If you're keeping up this regeneration that takes place that precedes our ability to have faith in God our cardiovascular system and our pulmonary system have been completely changed out. Well, this is amazing. And I ask, is there some regeneration inside of you that hasn't yet turned to faith? Because if you've been regenerated, well, this is the point where we can turn to faith. Not by our own doing, but by our own understanding. 
Have you been tasked with the understanding that your sin actually condemns you to hell? Or have you continued to run away from that by trivializing what sin is? Is there an apathy in you towards what righteousness actually means? If we have not understood this, there is no salvific work inside of us. There's nothing to receive upon us because what we receive, loved ones, is the victory of Christ. It's not supposed to just look like a struggle. It's not about just struggling. It's supposed to look like receiving what we've already won. This happens, our regeneration happens so that faith can follow and there's no cooperative element between man and what God has already done in starting this. Matthew Barrett, writing on the doctrine of regeneration, asserts to say then that regeneration is a synergistic act, that means two people working together, one in which God and the sinner must cooperate with one another, one in which the sinner can ultimately conquer God's grace, is to give far too much credibility to the sinner's ability. If we understand this in light of how a person is to be saved, why do we fail to apply it in regards to how Christians are supposed to be growing in their faith today? The attack of the enemy in this case upon the Christian community is that we would be completely fixated on justification, seeing that others come to know Jesus as their Savior, that even some, <clears throat> that, that, I'm sorry, the attack of the enemy is that the church would be so distracted that our focus would be completely on justification. That is our missional work to bring God's word to the community around us. Our focus is totally wrapped up that we would see other people come to a saving work in Christ that we actually neglect that it is the power of God that will bring people to Christ. We don't live it out in our own lives. Inversely, even though that sounds like a good thing, our other focus might completely be on the hope that we have to one day be in heaven. That is our glorification, the perfection that we will receive, the wonderful day of worship in God's kingdom, that we would become a people of faith who are able to endure every trial. And we neglect that salvation has a present ongoing work today. Both of these things, even though they sound good, justification and glorification being our attention, when we neglect immediate sanctification in the middle, we are losing the power of Christ to actually live this life out. We're neglecting, overshadowing an equally essential component of what it means to be a Christian. Our life today, our salvation today, our present reality with God. The church's mission in the community will never be effective without a church that is focused on their present salvation. The doctrines of heaven will never bring us as much joy, as much peace, as much hope when we are aware of what God is doing in our life today. Once we become Christian, it seems as though we ignore justification that we are saved by grace through faith on account of Christ and turn all our focus on obedience or sanctification. We stop preaching the gospel to ourselves and keep trying to live the Christian life. Why are you trying to live the Christian life? This is nonsense. We have to put our justification before our sanctification every day 
This is what it means to take or receive, as Paul has instructed us to do in verse 17 of our text. Martin Lloyd-Jones develops the culprit of much of our frustration with pursuing righteousness through sanctification instead of focusing on sanctification in his book, Spiritual Depression. It's a great book, by the way. Lloyd-Jones writes, Ultimately, the only thing which is going to drive a man to Christ and to make him rely upon Christ alone is a true conviction of sin. We go astray because we have not truly convicted we are not truly convicted of our sin. Therefore, my beloved, just as always you just as always you have obeyed not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. Work out your own salvation. Daily, consider your justification. Don't just focus on persevering in the Christian life, but realize that what God has done in you is a miracle. Your cardiovascular system's changed out, brand new. Your pulmonary system's changed out, brand new. Your faith in Christ comes from Him. Work out your own salvation to realize then that everything that it means to go on in the Christian life also comes from Him. Work out your own salvation to realize that this is ongoing within you. Realize that the same mechanism, that God is God's work that saved you, will continue to grow you in spiritual maturity. That one day you will continue to grow in Him. And what does that look like? It means that as a church, as a people, as an individual, we need to get serious about God's Word. Actually read it. Actually open it up. Actually consider what these things mean. Actually spend time in it. And I know school has begun this week. And for our um, students who are in college, school's beginning this week. All the more reason to place all of your attention on God. Spiritual warfare is not going to decrease because now you're around a bunch of people. It's going to increase. By the way, it already has. Because now your time is preoccupied with lesson planning and everything else. If you do not carve out time in your day to get serious about God's Word, you will continue to rely upon your own intellect, your own reasoning, everything that's inside of you to grow closer in Him instead of actually deepening your walk with Him. Get serious about God's Word. Get serious about church membership. Well, that's a weird one. How did I get there? Did I just jump ship? Am I inserting my own preference? No. Let me point out. The entire passage about spiritual armor is written to the individual church in Ephesus. No, it's not. It's written to the called out assembly, the church in Ephesus. He tells us in chapter 3, pulling together the unity of the body that the church has been established, that it's the mystery of God presented all these things. Chapter 4, that we are supposed to be united as a body, that we are given spiritual gifts. That's right, God's work inside of you, that you would edify the saints around you, that you would be able to help these Christians who are in the same struggle as you. All of these things because the church is important in context. Get serious about church membership. And finally, get serious about your mission. 
That's right, your mission. God has given the church the command to go into all of the world to preach the gospel and to make disciples. By human ingenuity, we have concocted so many plans to accomplish that that many missional operations in the world today look nothing like what Paul's mission looked like. That's why I let off with get serious about the Bible. Our instruction for mission is in the Bible. The church in Ephesus, the church in Galatia, the church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonica. These churches, well, just something to consider. It seems like when we look at what missions look like, the only idea that we have is that we should send somebody and that we should support them. I want to point out that in many cases, Paul spent less than five months with the churches that he planted. And through that, the gospel was propagated through entire areas. I can think of no missionary that has accomplished what Paul has accomplished. And I don't think it's because Paul's that great. I think it's because God's that great. What God accomplished in his planting of the churches was that he established people and he brought them to a place where they would be eager to learn God's word, where instead of coming to church and simply engaging with the words or the logos that a preacher gave them, that they would discuss and and discern and dive deep and they'd figure out these doctrinal things. They'd get serious about growing in their own depth. Because when Paul left them in five months... Those churches are the ones that went planting more churches. In our own context today, I think what we've neglected is that we think that the American church exists just so we can support foreign missionaries. Instead of realizing that there is an entire mission field in and around us, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And our focus then, whenever we get passionate about that, is I really want to get serious about missions, and we think that we need some program that's going to lure people into us so that we can give them the gospel. It is not the church's responsibility to preach the gospel to the heathen. It is the Christian's responsibility. The church's responsibility is to care for those Christians who are preaching the gospel. The pastor's job is not to do all of the work of ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That doesn't happen unless we get serious about the Word of God, get serious about church membership, and get serious about our mission, realizing that the only way God's mission works is when we let Him work through us. Instead of concocting a plan and bringing your marketing ideas and everything else to the way that you conduct yourself in your community, yield wholly and completely to God's plan and be obedient to Him, turning your attention to Him, that He would be glorified in you. Loved ones, this morning, well, our time together is drawing to an end. And so far, I have only exposited one word in our five-word passage. The word take. 
we've drilled into this one word because the implication is serious. What does it look like to work out our own salvation as Paul has instructed the church in Philippi? And as he is concluding his letter to the church in Ephesus, it means to take his word seriously. There are so many problems that we face in our world today, whether we are at work or in school or even within the church. We find plenty of causes to lead us to doubt. The devil is very much at work in our lives today as he was in the lives of the early church. The solution is not anything outside of the Bible. It means to take our church membership seriously, to realize that we will be discouraged, that flaming darts of the enemy will come among us, that our faith will dwindle, and that we need the encouragement and the love and the burden-sharing of the New Testament church. I exhort you in two ways, then. Don't let your church members down. They need you to be here. And in the second way, don't try to do this on your own. Your church is here for you. Thirdly, that we would get serious about our mission. And that means placing God first. The call of application in this message in one way is to repent of being self-sufficient. In another way, it's to marvel at the work of regeneration that's taken place in you. As we prepare to sing, I ask that you would reflect and respond the way that God has led you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the way that you've led us to worship. God, I pray that you would Guide us as we continue to worship you this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we prepare to sing?